that or you forgot that literally in the last two weeks maybe you need this reminder right now that's okay let me remind you god wants to inhabit every aspect of your mind he doesn't just want to be in your actions he doesn't just want to be in your speech he first wants to be in your mind because that will inform the attitude of your heart the conduct of your speech and your actions everything that we perceive comes in and is processed through our brains that God created us to use. So it's time for us to start becoming more aware of how we need to be healthy in our minds. And there might have been a lot of situations, circumstances in your control or outside of your control that have led to maybe you getting your mind a little bit messed up, maybe through addiction, maybe through self-image, maybe through trauma. Uh, you know, it, it can be a lot of different things. But the focus of our sermon series over these last few weeks has been to capitalize on becoming more aware of the possible positive or negative effects that technology in particular can have and does have on each and every single one of us. So today, we're going to continue on in this discussion based around technology. We're going to look all over God's word. I'm going to read some more studies and, and, and some research that is all over the place that you can find. Uh, that's going to really hone in specifically on the relationship between technology and idolatry. That's a big one. So buckle up. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can always come to your word and always find you. Always be your way. Always learn more about who you are and how you want us to view you and how you want us to live within the created purpose that you fashioned us for. Lord, today I pray right now that all across the internet, every house, everybody's watching right now. Father, I pray that today you would cleanse their minds to recognize the importance of your word and what it says about idolatry. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, the title of my message is this, Reset Your Reflection. Reset Your Reflection. Um, you might be, you know, I, I don't want to be rude. Uh, let's start off with you might be a really handsome individual. Uh, you might be a knock em dead, like, yeah, I know how good I look, and I don't need anybody to tell me. And, you know, maybe you're not. I don't know. So let's just leave it there. That's okay. Um, you are uniquely created by God. That's it. We all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. But the bottom line is, for all of you that are sitting there with your egos puffed up right now thinking, yeah, I'm that good looking one, um, you're going to get old. You, Seth, and we're all going to get ugly, I think, I hope, I don't know. Um, but I bet every day, as every year of your life passes by, you start to notice differences in your appearance. Every time you look in that mirror, maybe for some of you it's worse right when you wake up. And you got to put yourself together. I don't know. Maybe for some of you it's not that bad, but you're noticing some hair loss, some liver spots, some 
you lost a tooth in your sleep because your spouse elbowed you by accident or on purpose. I don't know. The nose hairs are growing out more. You get another new beauty mark. Don't you like how it's been called beauty marks when I got them all over the place? And it's like they're not beautiful by any means, but they're beauty marks, right? Make ourselves feel better. Make ourselves feel better. It's interesting how much we notice the way that we look as things change in our complexion and our body, the weight that we've gained, all that. Um, also, on a, uh, on a note of reflection, it's, it's funny. I have a very distinct memory about uh, my cat growing up who we took him to the vet when he was a baby. And I guess he had never seen his reflection before. And we were in the vet's office, and there was a door kick on the bottom that was made of uh, a, a very shiny, fake bronze that you could see dimly, but you could see a reflection. And my little, tiny, cute, pudgy, puffy cat is just waddling around the whole place. And all of a sudden, he comes in front of the door, the doorstop, and, and he sees his reflection, and he freaks out. He jumps, and his hair stands up, and he... He started hissing at it, and he ran away, and he came back to pee, and he freaked out and ran back away, and he, it, it was just hilarious to watch my cat was afraid of his own reflection because he didn't like what he saw. You know what? I just want to ask you right now at the start of our discussion to be really honest with you. This is a message that is for you and you alone. If I can encourage you more than anything else, do not think corporately. Do not think interrelationally as much as you can. Think self. Look at yourself today as we look at God's word. Because each and every single one of us need to see the reflection that's staring back at us and ask ourselves whether that whether or not this is what God wants me to reflect or a reflection of the world that I have allowed myself to be consumed by. Um, so let, let me just read for you Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the first scripture today, and it says this. So God created mankind, man and woman, in his own image. In, his, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, let me give you a definition of the word reflection that I am really talking about today. A biblical understanding of reflection. Uh, the definition is this. We are created to be a reflection of the divine. Right out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, plain as day, God, if you go back a few verses prior to that, he's having, uh, he's having amongst his cohort of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, okay, we've created all of these incredible things in the world, and all of it's good, but it's not finished. Now let's create mankind. Let's create the final step of creation, the final being of creation. And let's fashion creation to be a reflection of us. I mean... Stop and think about the implications of that. You were created to be a reflection of the divine. Man, say husbands, do you like to say, man, my woman is divine 
you don't know how biblically accurate you are being in that moment. I mean, it might be overly romanticized, but use that one, especially when you're in trouble. Or wives. Uh, you can say that about some. Uh, but literally, we are created to be a reflection of the divine. What an honor, what a privilege, and what a challenge that is. And, and that idea of being created in the image of God and we're to be a reflection of him has been vastly debated over the centuries amongst biblical scholars and, and theologians and pastors and just church people. I remember having this conversation when I was a kid when I didn't even care about theology. Somehow it came up. This is one of those ones. It's like, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Do we literally look like him? Do we smell like him? Is it more of a moral issue? I think it's a lot of the above. But I'm not going to be really answering that question necessarily here today. In fact, what I really want to focus on when we talk about this reflection of the divine is not what exactly is that reflection, but simply the overarching weight of the answer. You were created to be a reflection of God. Don't even get bogged down on the details of it. Just focus on that fact. You were created to be like God. What a privilege and what a responsibility. So let, let, let me uh, give you a resource that really helped guide the focus of our discussion today for me that uh, I thought uh, is an invaluable resource that I wanted to share with you. The author by the name of G.K. Boyle, a biblical theologian, wrote a book, A Biblical Theology on Idolatry. Uh, so there's a picture of it right there coming up on your screens right now. Screenshot it. Take a note of it. I would highly, highly recommend that you get this resource. It's not a light read, but it's not a, oh my goodness, I don't understand a word he's saying read. It's somewhere in the middle. It's going to challenge you, but the author specifically intended to do his best to make sure that even a lay person can read this without sacrificing the deep theological, biblical essence of the topic of idolatry seen from Old Testament to New Testament. So again, I would really encourage you, get this book, put it on your wish list, maybe have someone uh, buy it for you for a birthday or Christmas present. It's an invaluable resource when you want to go deeper into the topic that I'm going to briefly discuss today anyway. Um, but from his book, he has a, what I'll term, thesis. It, it's not really his thesis, but it's the pastoral while scholarly point that he wants to hit home that is the foundation to the whole topic of discussion about idolatry and this is a direct quote that is really going to influence all of the discussion that i have with you today and here's here's his point he says this what people revere they resemble either for ruin or restoration. A lot of R's right there, but I want you to think about that again for a second. What people revere, they resemble. It becomes a reflection of who they are. And that's either for ruin or restoration. Uh, so let, let's pick apart that first word because it's really important, reverence. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's not usually used in common English today, but it's still a word. Reverence, to revere something. Um, let me just give you a very dumbed-down version that I could come up with because it's 
man, you got to talk so much about reverence from a biblical perspective to know really what all of its implications are. But really just an easy way for us to set us up for success and understanding reverence would be this. Reverence is when we put something ahead of ourselves. It's when we actively say, I am going to minimize my desires, my preferences, even my needs in order to put something before me as more important. So your time, your attention, your resources, your willpower, everything that you have at your disposal to spend, when you put it on something, you're saying, I value that even before myself or other things. I revere it. So in in the Bible, when we look at the Old and the New Testament, we see reverence as something that counts an individual or a thing as worthy, as something that is honorable, as something that is respected by us, again, through our actions, how we revere it. Some examples of that we see uh, in Scripture is when we pay reverence, we show reverence to parents, fathers and mothers. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, all the way up to the New Testament in Ephesians. Paul commands it. Um, We see reverence to God. You are to revere God. You are to count him as worthy. You're to respect him. You're to honor him in so many shapes and fashions. Um, You're to revere God's sanctuary, literally the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, In the New Testament, it's also talked about extensively in so many particulars how we're to revere God's temple, which then is shown to be us, the body of Christ, so that reverence is still there for God's house. goes on and it says in the book of Psalms that we're to show reverence for God's commandments, all that his word says that we're to do. The Bible also talks about the negative consequences that follow our unwillingness or our refusal or lack of reverence towards God, his house, and his people. And, And a lot of times, consequences really are dire and they result in in pain and trouble for us Uh, you know i i just thought it's it's not a really big point but as we're looking at reverence in the old and the new testament one of the outright straight up reverence the same word of reverence in the old and in the new testament from hebrew to greek that is used explicitly really is only seen in its most explicit form in ephesians Uh, In that whole section of submission, it's where husbands, that's your favorite verse in the Bible, wives submit to your husbands. Um, And I got to give a little bit of correction there if you're an individual that loves to quote that and say, you wives submit to me. Um, If you go back to the context of that whole passage that talks about how Christ gave himself up for the church and how we are to submit to him. And then it goes on in a very categorical way to say, okay, here's how you submit to Christ, but it uses the word reverence. Here's how you show reverence to Christ. And the whole section from wives to husbands, husbands to wives, uh, children to parents, slaves to masters, that whole section is all about submission. And so ultimately that whole section is about how all of us in the body of Christ submit to one another, not just wives to husbands. All of us submit in a very, very unique way to each other, as Ephesians shows us. And that act of submission is how we show reverence to God. That's one of the most explicit answers to the question, well, how do I show reverence to Christ? Read Ephesians chapter 5 
and, and go through it in depth. But I don't want to get caught up on that. Um, we even see the idea of reverence in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when it comes to the idea of being persecuted for our faith, where we're to count it as a joy, where we're to say, wow, not be out of our mind and say, yeah, thank God I'm going to be crucified or falsely imprisoned. No, not, not be sadistic and masochistic to be realists, but to count it as, a, as an honor because we are showing reverence to Christ through our act of submission, even when that submission necessitates that we literally take up our cross and maybe go to the grave or go through persecution of, of extreme measure. But that, that's this biblical idea of reverence in, in a broad stroke understanding. Now, let me jump to idolatry because I said that's really what we need to couple with this whole conversation of technology and the mind. So idolatry, one of my favorite definitions that is from Warren Wiersbe that I've used time and time again uh, to help us understand idolatry is, is this. Idolatry is anything put ahead of, instead of, or right alongside of God. Idolatry is anything put ahead of, instead of, or alongside of God. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 115, the first eight verses. And I really want you to lean into this so that you can understand what God is saying about himself in the first verse and then about those that are idolaters. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Showing the idea of how awesome God is, and in spite of everybody's mocking through difficulty and trial, God is still God. He is powerful. He is omnipotent, and he is there. And here's the response about those other, the nature of, outsiders and and their idols and their gods that they worship here's here's what the psalmist says but their idols their gods are silver and gold made by human hands those idols they have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see they have ears but cannot hear noses but cannot smell they have hands but cannot feel feet but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throat so just before i read the last verse stop right there and realize these idols that people that the psalmist is talking about pay homage to and pay reverence to and respect and sacrifice and give to that are counted as worthy and above and great and honorable are worthless they can't do anything they literally don't have senses that they are, they are inanimate objects they they do not have will of their own. They don't have a life of their own. And yet people created to reflect the divine are bowing down and revering things that they have no business giving reverence to. And here's the result of individuals that willfully maintain a lifestyle of idolatry. Verse 8 says this. Those who make them will be like and so will all who trust in them. Do you, do you realize the implications of that last verse? 
Do you realize what that means for anybody that practices idolatry? That you literally become dead, or not literally, figuratively, spiritually, emotionally, mentally become deaf, become senseless. You, things that had taste no longer become tasteful. You become depressed. You become anxious. Life becomes meaningless. Man, we, we can talk about that all day. I've got to say some things that I'd have to really expound upon that would really upset you. So I'm not going to say it. Well, maybe I'll say it later, so hold on tight. Uh, let me give you this example. What we see in technology creates a reflection of who we become. So now I, I want to tie in the reality of technology. What does technology have to do with idolatry? Let me give you a study that was done in January of 2006 that was recorded in an issue of Media Psychology. Um, this study found that when children watch violent television programs, mirror neurons, write that down and look that up afterwards if you want to, mirror neurons, as well as several brain regions involved in aggression were activated increasing the probability that children would then behave violently. So what does that study show us? Well, we talked about last week, and I briefly mentioned what mirror neurons are and how in babies as early as 18 hours, year old, 18 hours, years, 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 year, I don't know, old, um, they actually pick up on environmental changes and social cues. So that in a hospital, when the baby is taken from the mom and put in a room while the mother recovers, and that room where all the babies are crying, and the baby who might have been sweet and happy goes into that room and that environment, while the other babies are crying, mirror neurons start interacting with the environment and the people, and they pick up on those negative crybaby emotions, and they start screaming bloody murder, and I'm the dad, the, the soon, the soon to be, we're not pregnant, the wannabe dad that's on the outside, that's like, I don't want to go in that room. Nurse, look at my baby. Like that, that's, that's the idea of neurons that we talk, mirror neurons that we talked about last week. But here's what's fascinating. Initially, studies were made that were showing that mirror neurons have no effect outside of face-to-face, real-life interaction. Now, going all the way back to 2006, and the studies have since shown conclusive evidence that mirror neurons also, not as potently, but still have the same effect when you pick up social cues and practices via the medium of technology. So the shows that you watch, the video games that you play, social media that you're exposing yourself to, your mind is literally interpreting those and wanting to mirror what you're seeing so that you can actualize it, you can become it, whether it's good or bad. Understand, mirror neurons were created in us by God for a very specific purpose. So you should be mirroring things. But the question is what? So in regards to technology, remember, it's a medium. Technology is morally neutral. But it's about the motivation of the sponsors and the marketers and the companies and the platforms that you're exposing yourself to. Those are not neutral. Those can be morally ethical or unethical. So understand this. I believe the greatest accomplishment of an idol or an idolatrous style of living is to transform you 
into its own image. The psalmist said that. The psalmist says you're ultimately going to become that which you worship. And if you're worshiping a deaf, mute, senseless idol, you will inevitably become deaf, senseless, blind, mute. You're going to become the very thing that you're worshiping. What you are reflecting, you will become a reflection of. Now, let me ask you this question. Why does God prohibit idolatry? You go back to the Ten Commandments, you shall, have no graven image, you shall have no graven images before me. Idols. Even pictures. You know, personally speaking as a pastor, I don't want pictures of Jesus all over this place. Not because of the social ethics of it and whether Jesus was white or not. He wasn't, probably. <laughs> but because I believe it sets up an image where we box God in and we think that's got to be God. And then we create all these anthropomorphic ideas of, well, he's a man, and so he's got to fit within the context of humanity, and we limit him. I think that's one of the main reasons God doesn't want us to have graven images before him. More so within this concept of idolatry, I think one of the reasons God prohibits idolatry is because of the need to maintain a clear distinction between the creator and the created. God says, I don't want you to go down the route of becoming idolatrous because you are going to skew the lines between me and you. You are going to then find yourself self-deluded to thinking that you're on the same playing field with God and you understand him and you know him and you quantify him. And then when that happens, you don't need him. So that's just one reason why God says, have nothing to do with idols. So we're painting this picture. Idolatry bad. Um, and I, I hope you're seeing so far the connection of how technology can play a role in idolatry. Let, let me make that connection a little bit more clearly for you right now. Romans chapter 8, starting in the fifth verse, says this. Those who live according to the flesh, watch this, have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit of God have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. Man, talk about just like broken English right there. Paul didn't even want to further extrapolate that in that sense. He goes, if your mind is set, governed by the flesh, it's death. He's not mincing words. But the mind governed by the spirit is life, watch this, and peace. Stress, anxiety, we need to measure up. Life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh doesn't want anything to do with God, is staunchly against God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Not only does it want to, but it's so self-deluded, the mind that's set on the flesh, the idolatrous mind. Not only does it not want anything to do with God, it literally can't do so because it's lost its ability to measure up. You are Philippians chapter 2, Christ Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Um, there's going to be a bunch of pictures that come up right now on your screen. 
And I want you to just look at these pictures, and I want you just to allow whatever comes to mind, comes to mind. So let's throw up a first picture up there. Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? Look at all the Valentine's Day. Look at the love. Look at the romance. Look at the laughs. Look at the fun. Um, pause on that picture really quick. This picture, if you didn't already pick up on it, which I'm sure you would have, is a screenshot directly from Nike's website that you can go on right now and you can see. What is Nike? Clothing, shoes. But what are they marketing to you right now? Love, happiness, laughter, good looks. But buy our stuff. And if you buy our stuff, this will happen. Right? Okay, let's go to another one. All right, this picture, uh, this is uh, a picture that's on some of the 30 most successful marketing campaigns that you can find. This is a picture of, you know, that, that is a suave man right there with one too many buttons unbuttoned. And his hair is like perfect, even though he's going who knows how fast on a Lord knows how expensive boat. And what does that image say to you? Maybe it says a lot of things. Maybe it says, man, I, I got to go back to the gym. Maybe it says, I wish I had hair like that. But ultimately, what is the image really trying to sell you? You need a boat. And if you have a boat, you're going to look like that. Can I tell you, the majority of dudes that I know have boats look nothing like that. There are some of the worst looking people on earth that got a beer gut and let their boat, boats go to junk anyway. Let's do another picture. Uh, okay, this is a picture that is representative of some of the most successful workplace environments that you can have in a business. This communicates to you that, man, after we just had a meeting, everybody's high-fiving each other, and we're all on the same page, and we love life, and everybody got along. If you've ever been in a corporate meeting in any facet, in any setting, rarely do they ever, ever end without somebody making snide remarks, gossiping about each other after everybody disagreeing, finding no common ground, and in the best case scenario, you agree to disagree. There's usually always tension in the room. It doesn't look like that, but this picture sells you that, hey, if you come and work for us, every day's going to look like this, and every meeting's going to look like this. Okay, next picture. Um, okay, let, let's just go through some of these, because I don't want to discuss everyone, so uh, that was a good one. Here, here's another one. I don't, I don't know what this is communicating to you right now, but I mean, deep thinking. Oh, what do we got? We got a dude that's got some triceps and some forearms and some brachial radius. Oh, wait, no. Oh, man, you got a girl who's really got some biceps right now who's got her abs going on. I do not know, but I mean, money, Panthers, uh, plane. Uh, okay, wherever that is, I mean, that must be a dream vacation, but that's where you got to go. Um, I mean, success, hashtag Instagram worthy, perfect right here, just out here living my best life. Deep thought, contemplation, you know, if you want to be a successful individual, dress like this dude right here. Yeah, two pictures of the same guy. Two pictures of the same guy. That's, oh, wait, hold up. Hold up right now. Stop what you're doing and think. The perfect mother, the perfect daughter, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I have no idea. But if you are constantly exposed to a host of these images, they're going to tempt you. Now, was any of that bad? No, not necessarily. I mean, the money in the Panther thing, kind of questioning that one. Um, but like any of the other ones, no, they're not bad. You shouldn't think like, oh, it's sinful. No, that's the idea of I want to get in shape. I, I want to be successful. I want a, hel a healthy work environment. If you want to have a boat, have a boat. None of that's bad. 
But the point of it is, from a marketing perspective, you need to understand that even though the object, the technology, the device that you're using is morally neutral, you are having images and personas and perfect life scenarios and materialism and the idea of an idyllic family life all thrown in your face. And no matter what, you cannot escape the biological process that is taking place actively in your mind that is looking and processing the information before you and will have seeds planted in you that will inevitably want to emulate and reflect the things that you're seeing. I want a boat right now. I'm not going to lie. I really do. <laughs> and I want that boat. I don't want any boat. I want That was a nice boat, man. Um, there are things that get me. It, and it's not about, hey, you're sinning, you're going to hell if you want things. That's not it. It's just, again, to stress the importance that there are organizations, companies, platforms, streaming services that know very well how to mine into your history, how to mine into what it is that you like. They know you pretty well because of everything that you do on the internet in front of your device. And so recognize every time you're on that device, you're going to be bombarded with a litany of invitations to participate, to buy, to become, to go. And I mean, we can sit here and talk about all the adverse effects of, about living a life in that manner without any realization about the, of the effects that it's having on you. Lack of contentment, anxiety, self-image issues. I'm going to get into some of this in a few moments, but I hope you're seeing the picture painted for you very well that technology is not an idol, but it can become one. And it can lead you to lifestyles where you become idolatrous. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I don't have a problem. I have, I have technology limitations. I put screen time limiters. I have accountability uh, blockers. I have all these things. I'm not really on. I, I like to spend my time out doing this and that and this and that, but don't miss that even if you're not utterly addicted to technology, it's still having an effect on you where other aspects of your life might become idolatrous, where your family in an unhealthy way becomes an idol, where money becomes an idol, where success becomes an idol, where self-image becomes an idol. Guess what? Technology played a big role in that. So even if technology isn't your idol, it can lead to idolatry. So um, let, let me just read one more scripture for you um, before I transition to some practical questions that we can ask ourselves. Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse four, says this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Here it is. Who is the image of God? I don't know if you've seen so far just throughout the week, these past three weeks, and even the scripture that I've read today, once again, the mind is a big deal to God. Huge. For believers and unbelievers alike, Second uh, Corinthians right there says that the mind of the unbeliever has been blinded because it does not have God to cleanse it, to illuminate it, to show it how it was purposed to function and live. I've said this point before, let me remind you of it. Technology is the quickest and easiest connection to the world. 
put this in easier connection to the world. You want to know what's happening in the world? You want to be a part of what's going on in the world? You want to know what clothes to buy, the greatest fashion to have, anything few and far between? Technology is your best bet. You don't need to leave the confines and the comforts of your home to know what's going on in the world. But understand, there is a deep, deep, deep ingrained implication within the minds of both believers and unbelievers when it comes to an unbridled, unaware, lack of just being honest in your reflection of how technology is affecting us. So um, before I go to the questions that I want us to start asking ourselves, some of you might still be objecting. Again, some of you might be saying, but but idolatry in the Old Testament, or as I've understood it or seen it, has to do with literal objects, idols. Yes, you are 100% right. You're not wrong in that. But what were the implications of those idols? I think you're doing yourself an extreme disservice when you think idolatry is refined to just this. So maybe you're an ex-Catholic and there's a lot of imagery that's used in rosary beads and crosses and all that. And maybe you're saying, yeah, that can become a form of idolatry and that's where I apply this, the reality of I need to avoid idolatrous practices and that and that alone. No, it is that, but it's not just that. Remember, idolatry is anything that is placed ahead of, instead of, or right alongside of God. And that's one of the dangerous ones. Um, but let me, let me just make this point to you. Just because you're not bowing doesn't mean you're not blameless. When it comes to the reality of the incessant marketing and imagery and, and ideas that are being pumped into you neurologically through the technology that's being reflected on you, you are inevitably going to be reflecting that back to the world, to the people that you know. It's biological and it's how we see it happening scripturally because you're not literally bowing down to it. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what? I'm not a slave to my TV. I'm not a slave to my phone. I'm not a slave to my job. I'm not a slave to success. I challenge you, please don't be. Please don't be. Because I can clearly see people who are brainwashed by the means to prove themselves in the workplace, successfully, with body image. It's a really easy thing to just check off that list. No, I'm not bowing to it. You are, just not in the way that you think. So let me ask you questions because, again, I want you to be honest and reflect right now about whether or not maybe you are in a, in a practicing a form of idolatry. Or maybe you're, you're, you're borderline getting there, and we want to be careful that you don't get there. So here's a couple of questions that I'm going to extrapolate with some scripture. First is this, ask yourself this question, honestly, when it comes to technology, how much do I depend on it? How much do I need it to function, both in the workplace, which you can't really avoid, but in the workplace and in my leisure time? How much of my life is central to the role that technology plays in order for me to accomplish or do or feel the things that I have as goals. Um, you know, let me just go there right now, right away off the bat. Do you look to technology for sexual security? Are you at home right now, and the minute I said that, conviction came over you? 
don't don't try to run from it. I know and I fight it and I escape it because I don't want to be addicted to unforgiveness. Are you addicted to pornography? Okay, maybe, maybe your answer is no. But from that, I'm going to say no because it's in the air. constant lustful thoughts and saying, yeah, but I'm addicted to pornography. But what's the root that's causing you to constantly have those lustful thoughts? Constant marketing and imagery that you're exposing yourself to because you don't have any limitations on the accountability blockers, but game plans. Maybe there's just some social media venues that you shouldn't be on because it's not outright pornography, but you know it's hurting you mentally and it is causing you to go and entertain thoughts that you just shouldn't be having that will eventuate into full-blown pornographic participation. Maybe it's really beyond that, and no longer the the technology doesn't do it for you. The dopamine has has run its course and not giving you that euphoric feeling anymore. Now you've got to go find the real thing. Maybe you're there. I just want to encourage you, like, be honest. How much do you depend on technology for good sexual pleasure? I know that's not all, but it's a big one. If we could just be real, like it's a big one. Men and women, it's a big thing that we all struggle with because, man, sex is just everywhere. And sex appeal is everywhere. And it's so hard, even when we actively try to escape it, we're going to be confronted with it. Being confronted with it is outside of your control. You're not sinning when you're confronted with it. You're sinning when you act on it. So maybe you're honest with yourself right now and ask, like, how much do I depend on technology? And maybe you're, you're just not even thinking about sexual immorality, but you depend on it for so many other things that inevitably leads to sexual immorality. Be honest with yourself. Don't run from it. Confront it. And you will be liberated. Let me, let me read to you. Um, specifically, it, it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, Moses says this. If your presence, Moses speaking to God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up to Mount context of the scripture is Moses and the Israelites had been camping and waiting at Mount Sinai, waiting for God to send them to their next destination. And God had done many amazing things at this point in Israel's history, and yet in spite of all of his amazing acts and his deliverance and his provision, they kept rebelling. And they kept sinning, and they literally went and they erected two golden calves, a golden calf, and practiced idolatrous worship in its most literal sense. And they said, this is the God that delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians. And they totally forsook God. And God was mad. And he said, Moses, get down there before I lose it. And there was consequences and there was punishment. And now it's just like everything just settled. And they're just like in this weird lull. And then God gives them next steps. But Moses knows, man, Israel really dug themselves in a ditch. And he just, he is an intercessor like we've never seen before. And he says, God, I I know you're making these promises to me, but I just, I got to know that I know that I know that before we move on in this journey, before we move into the next season of life, I've got to know that you are with me. You are ever present. You are constantly paving the way for us. Because if you're not, I don't even want to move on. I would rather just sit here until the end of my days because it's meaningless without you. Do you depend on God for
could do in any way, shape, and form, you have now committed idolatry. You really truly have. But we've got to be real about it. And, and don't minimize it. Because if God is not your God above all else, something else is. You cannot not revere something. You will revere someone or something. Uh, let's go to the next question. Ask yourself this question honestly. About technology, how will I feel if it's taken away from me? Bet like me, you throw a temper tantrum. I mean, when the batteries on my gaming system die, I'm about to put a hole in the wall. When the reality is, all I need to do is get up and plug the other controller in. But it is such an inconvenience. Yeah, this is really embarrassing, but I'm going to do it with you right now. That's what goes through my mind. Maybe as a kid watching this, your parents have confiscated technology. Maybe Wi-Fi went out because of a power outage. Maybe you forgot to pay the, the electricity bill. And for some reason or another, you can no longer go to the tablet, the computer, the TV that you are used to having as a part of your constant everyday life. Emotionally, where are you at? How do you respond? Are you like, eh, I'm good. Because if you are, good job. But if you even have like an inkling of like, geez, I do not know what to do with my life right now. And you start contemplating existential questions about existence itself and why anything exists. I mean, maybe that's a good thing, but usually it's not. Um, ultimately, how much do you depend on? Uh, excuse me. How do you feel when it's taken away from you? Here's a good biblical example of that. You ever heard of King Saul? Uh, he was the very first king of Israel elected by God from the tribe of Benjamin. It says he was a, a man of great stature. It was a small town, so I can't help but think, you know what, maybe he was just a big fish in a small pond. Or he was just objectively a really tall, handsome, good-looking dude, carried himself well. Either way, it doesn't matter. God chose him. For no rhyme or reason, God said, Saul, I choose you. And he was anointed to be the first king of Israel. And if you look at the story in the life of Saul, unfortunately, in spite of his good start, he did not finish his race well. And he stopped trusting in God. He started outright defying God and wouldn't repent and just lied. Lied to prophets, lied to God himself, literally self-deluded, saying, no, I'm, I'm doing your will, God. I'm following you. I'm doing everything. When God sends the prophet to confront Saul and say, Saul, you know, literally I told you not to do that. And you are lying to my prophet's face right now. You're running. And God takes away from Saul his authoritative, his authority as a king. And he says, Saul, I, I remove from you your right to be a king. And he anoints the second king of the history in Israel, David. And we all know King David well. But we know historically that there wasn't a amicable passing of the kingship. In fact, Saul became demonized. And the only thing that would calm him was when his successor would come in and play a harp, David. And so one day Saul just got so outraged, picked up a spear and chucked it. And it just barely missed David's head. And David then went on a run for his life and continued to run for what scholars believe to be a minimum of four years. He was constantly going from cave to location to location trying to preserve his life because King Saul was after him. Now, there comes a point in time where Saul was having a fight with the Philistines, and somehow he 
doesn't win the fight but gets out of it and doesn't no longer needs to worry. But in the midst of this fight, he finds out that David, his anointed successor who's been trying to kill, is barred away in this little closed-off gated town. And he's got his armies there from the battle against the Philistines that he doesn't need to worry about anymore. And he goes, I, I want to go and I want to finish this now because I got him right where I want him. And look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 7. It says this, Saul was told that David had gone to Shiloh. And he said, oh, God is so good. He has delivered David into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Saul was very entitled. And Saul was very egotistical. And Saul, in spite of being outright confronted by the prophet of God, with the words of God and saying, Saul, I remove from you the right to be king and David will be your successor. Not only did he defy that, but he came to such a place of constant defiance that he literally self-deluded himself to believe, God can't even fight me. I'm good. I'm doing the right thing. It's our kind of the mind that happens in believing where we run from God and we defy God so frequently because we don't want to be honest with ourselves and confront the reflection that we see staring back at us as not reflecting God, but reflecting this world. And we are so self-deluded that we say, no, God, this is exactly where God has me. God is good. He's blessed me beyond measure. I don't need to change anything about my life. Entitlement, which is what Saul was, entitled. Entitlement is a force that will cause us to idolatrize ourselves. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't invite this. I'm not an issue. Fine. But you haven't really looked at your faith. Have you placed yourself on a level that you've really got to do this? A place that you shouldn't be. If you have trouble to admit that you might have a problem, if you have trouble to admit you're wrong in anything, I'm not saying you're going to hell. I'm just saying... Brother or sister, stop it. Stop thinking that your own stank is a bed of roses. You need to be real that not everything you say is from the voice of God. Not everything that you've learned is God himself. You might be wrong, and you might be really, really awesome. Saul was. I was an entitled one. How would I feel if this was taken away from me? Next question. When it comes to technology, is it causing me to be more concerned with my material growth rather than my spiritual growth? This is where technology can be an utter force for good and growth as a believer, or it can be a force of utter destruction when all you're doing is using it to build up a material pool for yourself. Uh, Proverbs chapter 27 verse 19 says this, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects their heart. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. He says that where a person's treasure is there, their heart will also be. Or the other way around. I don't remember exactly. But it has to do with the fact that, man, you want to know what somebody's 
emotional state and what they value above all else is, the conduct of their heart, who they are as a person, you're going to know it by what they value, by what they treasure more than anything else. And come on, we all can be so easily caught up in material things. We just want more and more and more, and we lose contentment with what we have. I can't ever help but think about every time I need something new. I say, I need something new. A lot of times I don't. And I can't help but think about that passage of Scripture when Jesus is sending out the, the disciples two by two, and he's still alive. And he says, don't, don't take really anything with you. Just, just take a staff, take your cloak on your back, and your shoes and on your sandals. Because I'm going to make sure that it doesn't even wear out. The thongs of your sandals won't even wear out. The leather won't erode. And it's like, <laughs> I look at that scripture and I say, if God says that, it's probably not simply to be this most divine, miraculous miracle where he's saying, hey, if you're a good Christian, you only have one pair of clothing. No. But I, I really think about that scripture and I say, man, Jesus doesn't want us to be so worried about the peripherals of necessities like clothing and food and materials and, and where we live and the jobs that we work. He says, as long as we're running after God and serving him, he's going to take care of all of that. So that's really where we should be. But maybe we're not even there. And maybe if we're being honest, we're in a place of just utter consumerism where we're not worried about God sustaining what we have. All we can concern ourselves with is I need more and more and more. And the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, is what I have okay and good enough? Do I really need that other blank? Do I really need another blank? Because if you, if you cannot, if you cannot say no to something, maybe it's things you need. If you cannot say no, man, I, I, I fear for the negative impact that your consumption of technology is having to things and cool and utter materialism. Like, Laura, are you utilizing technology in such a way that I just want to grow in my relationship with God. When I'm on this phone, like I, I would encourage you right now where you're at, if you have it and it's not going to be a distraction, just like take this out. Turn it off and just like look at this. Hold this up right now or your computer or your TV and say, and, and be honest, is this helping me to grow spiritually or is it stifling me? Is it setting me back? Be honest. famous church father who really gave us and extrapolated Paul's theology of grace in the New Testament was Augustine or Augustine. And he said this, and this is going to be a really like wordy, this is a direct quote from him hundreds of years ago, uh, about the topic of idolatry. He says this, evil is located rather in the potential choice to reduce all things to the role of fulfilling one's own desires the tool employed for this end becomes an idol i know that was a mouthful but what augustine is trying to inform us now about idolatry is that it becomes wicked like technology it becomes wicked when every choice that we make in our use of technology or anything else as a tool to be used for good or bad is used for the express purpose of fulfilling our own 
materialistic, negative, evil desires. In other words, when this tool right here is used for nothing more than social media surfing that does not bring glory to God, does not bring glory to God. Social media interaction can bring glory to God, but I'm saying when it doesn't, when all I'm doing on Instagram is constantly trying to bolster myself as this incredible individual that everybody needs to know that has a perfect life, and then I get agitated and, and utterly upset when I see everybody else's insta-perfect life. And, and why don't I have that? That's not bringing glory to God. You're, you're being jealous. You're putting yourself at a place of, of entitlement. And I'm better than... When all you do is go on Amazon. When all you do is say, I'm not content with my job. I need another job. When, when all you're doing is trying to further your own belief system that is completely outside of God's will and his plan for your life. When all you do is use your device for any one of those aforementioned aspects. It's evil. And the tool then becomes by default an idol. That's what Augustine said. He said, he's not God. Take it for what it's worth. Respect him. When's the last time you said no? Honestly. Not saying no if your kid asked for something and they didn't need it saying no to when you didn't want to take another bite of that cake and you knew you should have. Those could be good, but when have you just said no when you should have said yes? When have you honestly said, you know what? Man, I've been surfing this a long time, and if I remember anything about what I've read or learned or what pastors said, I know that they are good at knowing what keeps my attention, and they are working on wanting me to buy that new car <laughs> or that new phone, or that new whatever. When have you just said no, and stuck to that no, and not said a week later, oh, now I know why. That's what he's trying to get at. No, 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 no. I would encourage you, don't go down that road. All right, uh, another question. Do you look, when it comes to technology, do you look to it for validation? The need to be approved. Um, literally, within social media, the need for likes. Like, are you pulling your phone out constantly after you posted that photo that you put three hours too long into editing and it really didn't make it look all that much better and you are waiting for the world and the and Dwayne the Rock Johnson himself to say, looking good, hon, uh, on it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, 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 and when you don't and you, and you look and you only have two likes or you don't even have a like and you got like 14 views, are you kidding me? Are you people that pretentious and that evil and that unaffirming? Look in the mirror. Why do you care? Why do you need that validation? Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to post photos, but how much stock are you putting into the result, the emotional fulfillment you're going to get from it? Um, you know, in, in um, oh, geez, I forgot the year. Um, there was a there was something that came out in the mid two thousands uh, when selfies were just huge. Selfies. Um, there was there was a, a a potentially psychological study that proved that and and lifted up the term of selfieitis. Like selfieitis, selfieitis. Thank you, selfieitis, which has since been you know renounced. It's not an official psychological term and realm of behavioral sciences but that whole trend of people are just utterly addicted to the need for validation and that's why there there's an addiction to taking selfies 
actually caused the scientific realm and the the field of psychology to do studies, controlled groups, focus groups, surveys on whether or not this actually has an effect because, man, a lot of people are doing it. And so the research was taken seriously. While sulfitis isn't still a a, a literal term, um, here's just one bit of research that you can find was done at an uh, Indian University, Indiana University. It says that um, the study that was done tried to focus on college students, over 600, that were taking selfies. And they kind of branched out and just were looking to the realm of social media and likes in general and saying, what were characteristics that we found common amongst those 600 college students that were emotionally present as they were looking for this validation. So here are those six characteristics. Number one, they saw commonly amongst these 600 college students that there was a need for environmental enhancement. So in other words, they were on social media, they were taking selfies, they were you know, photoshopping everything and, and going to it to escape reality because they wanted to feel good about what they found internally within what they were seeing in technology, on social media platforms. The next was uh, a a common thread of social competition. Everybody just, you know, bullying each other and trying to be better than each other in the name of vanity. Attention-seeking was another characteristic that was common. I, I need this validation from others to tell me my worth. Mood modification. Of these 600 students, it was a common thread that, man, life is miserable right now, let me jump into the realm of social media. Let me try and change my emotional state of being through my interpretation of what a perfect life is. Self-confidence. People just running to social media. People running to this platform to build themselves up, which I'm going to show you in the next point is the exact opposite. Um, And then finally, social conformity. There was a common thread that overexposure to social media and that platform leads to an idea of massive groupthink, massive conformity, massive peer pressure, massively, the likes of which have never been seen even in common group settings, which studies also prove is a reality. But within the realm of social media, oh my goodness, everybody's right in what they say and nobody's wrong and everything is subjective and I just got to agree with everybody and We can't agree to disagree. Um, We look to it for validation. All right, let me go to the next point because it'll kind of build upon it. Do you view technology as infallible? So I said technology is morally neutral. I didn't say it was infallible. In other words, do you mean that it can never make a mistake? A lot of scientists would somewhat agree with programming as infallible in its ability to make a mistake, its calculation. Sometimes there can be margin for error, but almost infallible. Do you view your technology as infallible? Do you view your use of technology as infallible? Wow. Um, Let's go back to this idea of social media comparison. That was a common thread that was seen in in the previous study. Um, This is really interesting. Um, I'm going to say the name, and we're streaming this through Facebook, so if I get shut off, (laughs) I'm just saying it proves my point about what I'm about to get into. Um, A Data engineer, product manager by the name of Frances Helgen, a female, uh, was recruited by Facebook uh, recently. 
let's put it that way, recently to be the head of their civics integrity department. So in other words, everything that that Facebook and understand this in 2012, Facebook bought Instagram. So I'm I'm putting them in the same group, Facebook and Instagram. But I'm going to hone in on Instagram in a second. Everything that we put out, everything that's a part of our design, not just the marketing, but the programming, the the effects that our platforms have on individuals. What are the ethics of it? It was her job to be heavily involved in that department and to make sure that she was presenting the data so that the executives would understand and pivot as needed if the data showed to be that their processes, their systems were resulting in unethical situations that were hurting people rather than helping people. Because again, social media at its foundation is supposed to be a way for us to connect and have fun and there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens if that platform now supersedes that intention and becomes detrimental to our health? She was a part of the research. And after her study, she leaked the research probably for a reason that you can put two and two together because executives weren't taking the research carefully and she was so disgusted by the research and the lack of action to then accommodate and pivot and adjust based on the unethical results of that research. There's a big debacle on it. You can just type in Facebook whistleblower and you're going to see all about it. And she's standing and going before Congress and legislation. She's not trying to become famous through it. I mean, I don't know her intentions, but all I know is that part of her intentions, she's going before Congress and lobbying that we actually pass legislation to carefully regulate what social media platforms and these juggernauts of information uh, leakers are able and not able to do. Anyway, here's a part of these, the ethical study that she found out uh, through the research and the data that Facebook itself found out and came up with, and you can look this up online. Um, the Facebook research into the mental effects on Instagram, uh, they, they looked at the effects that Instagram is having on people. And specifically, they researched in, in focus groups, online surveys, diary studies, uh, took place from the years 2019 and 2020. Um, it includes large-scale surveys of tens of thousands of people in 2021 that paired user responses with Facebook's own data on how much time users spent on Instagram and what they saw there. In other words, what that means is, man, they did a lot of study, a lot of research, and a lot of group studies and control groups and, and everything. Here's what Facebook says right now. You can read it. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and a bunch of other things. Their official claims, Mark Zuckerberg and a number of other people. There it is. I said the name. Watch it yourself. Um, Facebook never withheld the information. That's what they say. They never withheld these findings. Okay. Um, the findings specifically were that 40% of young women who were Facebook users, or excuse me, Instagram users, found that their emotional state would categorically dip when they would look to Instagram for self-image boosting. So in other words, a young girl who feels bad about the way that she looks might go on Instagram for whatever reason to connect with friends, to connect with friend groups, personally, whatever. The research shows that every time, 40% of girls, every time they would go on Instagram, man, their self-image would drastically change. And 6% 
of the girls that were studied relayed that they had an increase in suicidal thoughts. You can take that data and you can do whatever you want with it. Do we need to marginalize everybody and say, oh, Instagram's evil, nobody should have Instagram? I'm not necessarily saying that. But I do have to ask the question, when we're talking about who's behind in social media today, why wasn't this made available? It says that it was, but how come it only became available, according to executives, after somebody who was hired as an executive ethicist had to then leak information and then quit the company and come out and actively come against them. Then this information comes out of, oh, it was always there the whole time. It's interesting. What's also interesting is that Facebook made a statement during these judicial hearings that they also were suspending the development of Instagram Kids, a platform that was in development for kids ages 13 and younger to get into the realm of Instagram. Interesting that the development of that platform was suspended after the leak of this information. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. You take this information and do whatever you want with it. Just process it and understand that maybe not everybody is inspired. Maybe everybody just has purely ethical interests in mind. Concern yourself with Netflix. I watch Netflix all the time, and I am amazed at how much I am seeing Netflix outright try to come against Christianity. Some of the top shows that are coming out, I'm not going to name them, but if you go on Netflix and you watch any of the top shows that have been out for the last two years at least, man, they just actively come against Christianity and paint this false picture. It's like I've never seen such an attack on Christianity. And it's such poor research that's done. And honestly, it frustrates me. But my point is, we need to be aware of these things. Because I still watch Netflix. Should I? (laughs) That's me and my wife to talk about. Um, But it's a question that we need to ask. All right. Spent too much time on that point. Let's start bringing it all and wrapping it up. Next question. Is it causing me, technology, to sacrifice things I shouldn't be sacrificing in order to fulfill a need? Let me just give you one biblical reference of this. Not a Christian, but a Moabite, a king, who was under siege from another nation, and things weren't going his way. He was trying to be victorious in warfare, and he kept failing. And here's what this Moabite king did. It says, when the king of Moab saw, this is 2 Kings chapter 3, when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, interpretation, things weren't going his way. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through the king of Edom. Let me try harder. But they failed. So here's what he does. When he's exhausted all of his other needs, at his disposal as a king, it says, then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king. That's a big deal. And offered him as a sacrifice in the city wall says the fury against Israel was great. In other words, the king's fury, he's ridiculing it. He was doing anything, anything to defend himself. The fury was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. He killed his own son and he got nothing for it. All because he couldn't admit when he was wrong, when he was wrong, when he was wrong. 
fact, the Bible in Deuteronomy and Leviticus expressly prohibits this kind of regular religious practice that was held by the pagan nations to offer human and child sacrifice. Child sacrifice specifically to the god Moloch. And if you read elsewhere in 2 Kings, there is another king, a king of Israel, a king of God's nation, who does the same practice and offers his son as a sacrifice. And so I just, I want to ask you, briefly, again, is technology leading you to a place that you're sacrificing things and putting them on altars? The integrity of your relationship with God and your relationship with your creator causing you to be more focused out of honor and out of love and out of the good do again of your parents your time spent social media platforms your sexually immoral platforms i don't know being a materialist and a consumer to the nth degree and if you are be honest with the hurting areas of your life that should not be sacrificed all right um, another question is this are you using it to avoid personal responsibility? Again, are you trying to escape? In other words, are you an, a categorical procrastinator? And you specifically go to procrastinate by using technology. If you do, that's a problem. Um, and then finally, here's the last one. I want to close with are, when considering technology, am I correcting its purpose? Correcting its purpose. Well, the technology is morally neutral and it can be used to strengthen you spiritually and strengthen you vainly. That leads to evil. Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9 say this The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So what's going on right here is a story maybe you've heard of, but once again, the Israelites are traveling in the wilderness and they complain, not a new complaint, but a regular complaint that I'm sure Moses was tired and God certainly was tired of hearing, oh God, circumstances are just so horrible. Man, life is so unfair right now. Nothing's going my way. God, Moses, wh why did you ever take us out of Egypt? Man, w we would have been better if we were left to die in Egypt than to rot out here. And God's just having none of it. And it literally says that God sent poisonous snakes among them. Probably don't like to hear that. <laughs> uh, check your bed under night, at nighttime, kids. Um, but God sent snakes among them to show them the consequences of their actions. Like, okay. You think things are bad? Let me show you how bad things can be when you don't have me working with you but against me. Did you hear what I just said? What will your situation look like if you have God working, not with you, but against you? The Israelites found poisonous snakes among them. Moses intercedes to God. God says, all right, Moses, here's what you're going to do. The people, I've heard their repentance and their cries. They've learned their lesson. I want you to craft a staff with a fiery-eyed serpent on it, the same word that's used to describe the actual snakes that were causing death and poison to circulate amongst the Israelite community. God says, I want you to fashion those very snakes, the object of their pain and their fear, the result of their disobedience, the curse 
that I placed upon them because of their disobedience. Fashion a staff, erect it, and tell them that when or if they get bit, look at that and they will be literally healed. Now I want you to think for a second. That's probably more of a nightmarish command by God. It's not this beautiful, oh, what a beautiful sight. Thank you, Jesus, for that ray of sunshine. No, no, no. When you are experiencing the consequences of your sinful mistakes, I want you to look into the very object that has led you to the object, to your sin. I want you to look at it, and I want you to come face to face a reflection of what you have brought upon yourself because you didn't trust in God and you looked to other things. Oh, man. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's jump to Second Second uh, Kings chapter 18. And we're going to see this bronze serpent resurface. The staff with the bronze serpent fixed. It says, he, this is referring to King Hezekiah, one of the few noble kings following David. Only a little bit of Solomon. All the rest, for most of them, were really bad. King Hezekiah was a good man. I think he was a really young king. At the age of 25, he took kingship and started leading the nation. And he came face to face with the reality that the nation was living in utter idolatry and obstinance and disobedience to God. They had allowed idol and idol worship into their kingdom in the very houses and tabernacles and synagogues of God. They had erected false statues where they were saying, yeah, we're worshiping God, but we're also doing all these other things. Remember, idolatry, anything that is worshiped or placed ahead of instead of or alongside God. That's what the Israelites were doing. Syn uh, syn syncretism, yeah. Not totally. Syncretism, the idea that, hey, I'm going to worship God and worship all of these other gods. It's okay, right? Because I'm still worshiping God. Uh-uh. You shall have no other gods before me. God is a jealous God. Israel didn't follow that command. Hezekiah comes into power and says, oh my goodness, we have got to repent and we have got to get things right. And so he goes and tears down the high places, the Asherah poles, all of the places of idol worship to say, God, we're getting things right before you. We're going to worship you and you alone. And then he goes to a very memorable piece of history. You see, the Israelites, all that time ago when, when Moses fashioned this, this bronze staff with the fiery eyed serpent snake on it, had kept that as a relic. And at some point in their deluded minds decided, hey, we're going to use this like, a, like an idol too, and we're going to worship it. It says that Hezekiah took it and he smashed it. I, I think it's profound for us to understand that even the greatest objects that God uses to communicate his plan, his purposes, his corrective nature at times, like the serpent was, the greatest things in our life can be twisted to become an idol. Because in history, that's literally what happened. God never intended this to be an idol. He intended it to be a representation of, I want you to see what you've done. You're going to be healed, but I want you to know what I'm healing you from. Don't take it lightly. And what do they do? They take it, and all these years later, they say, ah, another God to worship. How do you, okay. Um, again, the bronze serpent represents 
God saying, I want you to see that I've delivered you from. Where else do we see this in the scriptures? It's not going to be a scripture that you're going to see right now, but Jesus literally uses this psalm scripture as an example. He says, just as Moses lifted up the drawn servant and the people were delivered of their their iniquities, their, their hands and their sin, so the Son of Man will be delivered up. And he's not talking about resurrection from the dead. He's talking about being raised up from the dead. The cross is not meant to be a metaphor. The cross is meant to be a representation of the curse that Jesus bore. Jesus bore the curse. So, not to get into any kind of Roman Catholicism in our view, why the cross is important and whether or not there should be there, I can get into that. But I want to ask you this question technology should be a means that shows how Jesus lifted the curse of death from us and it shouldn't become the curse just because it wasn't created an idol doesn't mean it can't become one technology isn't inherently evil morally neutral it can be a force that can cause you to grow closer to God like you have never experienced before I am thankful that right now it is because of technology that we're able to commune together and we're able to hear God's word and learn together I'm thankful to God that he created human beings with the capacity to be able to invent things like this I'm grateful to God for Times where I just want to turn my brain off and go and watch a movie. I'm thankful for cinema. I'm thankful for social media. But none of it is infallible. The very devices that we use those media platforms themselves is not infallible. Just like the brazen serpent, God can allow things that we have created to be used for good, to draw us closer to him, which can at some point when we have fallen astray now become objects of wrath. Things that God says, I didn't ever intend for you to use that in that way. Go away from me. That's why the New Testament says, countlessly have nothing to do with idols. Have nothing to do with idols. Have nothing to do with idols. The work of idolatry is accomplished. The work of idolatry is accomplished. Satan, the ruler of this age, in manipulating technology to become idolatrous or to lead to a form of idolatry, whether it be work or monetary gain or materialism or self-absorption, the work of idolatry is accomplished when you remove God as your highest aspiration and technology leads to self-absorption. We are called to reverence God. We need to use technology to allow that and to facilitate that, not hinder it, not get in the way of that. Remember, Jesus, he was lifted up on that cross as an image for us to see what we were delivered from. Not to then bow down and worship that cursed thing. 
We worship Jesus. We worship a resurrected God. We thank him that he delivered us from the cross, but we don't worship the cross. We don't worship the object of deliverance that God has used in particular aspects of our life. We don't worship people. We don't worship ourselves. We worship God and God alone. No question to it. So again, I I just want to ask you, are you willing to be honest with yourself, with your spouse, with your friends, with your church? Really? Not because you're going to die and burn in hell. That's not what this message is about. This message is about you experiencing freedom. Freedom in your mind so that your heart can be restored and that you can rediscover that first love in God and God alone. Don't be a slave anymore. Recognize you were not created to be a dumb, deaf, mute, unintelligent, unintelligent, lacking of sense idol. You were created to be a reflection of the divine. Powerful. So don't miss that. And, And if there's anything getting in the way of that, give it to God right now. Can I pray for you? Right now, let's just right where we're at, all across the state, the world, wherever you're at right now, let's just call on God and and, and confess and profess our need of him. Father, right now, you see us, you know us. Lord, you, you know every intricate aspect of who we are. God, you know parts of us that we haven't even become self aware of, categories in our life that we need you to lay bare before us, sinful traits. God, so much that we need you to deliver us from. We need you to cleanse us of. Lord, I pray right now above all else, every voice, every ear that is listening to my voice, that has heard your word, Father, would it be inclined to receive and accept and repent. That's all we got to do. All we got to do is say, God, here I am. I, I see the reflection of who I've become. I see plain as day, and I don't like what's staring back at me. I don't like it. And God, I know that I was meant to be a reflection of you, which is beautiful, which is righteous, which is holy, which is transformative. God, I want to be that. So Lord, would you enter into my heart? Would you enter into my mind? And would you radically transform the very being, the very nature of me? of my spouse, of my children. Father, I I pray that when we go to work tomorrow and throughout this week, we would understand we are to reflect you, not be a reflection back of the world itself, not to just blend into the world, but to stand out. God, I know you are righteous, you are just, you are holy, you are mighty, and you will bless us. We won't need to worry about the thongs of our sandals, about the clothes on our back, about the food in our stomachs, about the the perspective of others on us. That means nothing. You're going to take care of us when we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. All these will be given to us. Father, right now, with, with technology, with these devices that we use, that can be a force for good, would we not allow it? for evil and destruction in our lives. Sanctify this, as crazy as that sounds, God. Sanctify the technology that we use. 
let it be set apart and holy to you. And I thank you for that. I love you. Lord, in all my life, thank you. Praise you. Bless all of those doing this work today. I pray that they would have fruitful conversations following this today. Keep us safe. Jesus' name, we give you the praise.